Wissington Falls News Review Now with the Oom is on the air. Welcome to Blissington Falls News Review Now for Tuesday, August 13th. I'm Trizzy and this is... I'm Ume. I love you very much. Let's eat ice cream and pizza together. Ume. That's a really nice idea, Ume. I like that. I love everyone, so I want to have fun with them. Great. A lot of people tell me you're the cutest, sweetest one, Ume. Please tell them I said thank you. I don't get to talk to them. You're talking to them now. You can tell them thank you right now on your very own. I can? Of course. Go ahead. I'm too shy. Oh, Ume. Thank you, everyone. I am shy. Ume, here we are again celebrating Trizzy Ween, our three-month celebration of Halloween and horror, and all kinds of black cat creepy cemetery with dancing skeletons and cackling witches fun. Don't forget the jack-o'-lanterns, Mom. Oh, yeah, the jack-o'-lanterns. It certainly wouldn't be Halloween without some grinning, howling jack-o'-lanterns. And three bears. Three bears? Like in Goldilocks? We have three Halloween bears. They live on our TV. That's right, the little Halloween bear trio. I put them there last year and just left them out because they're so cute. They're always cute, aren't they? I think so. Do you think they're cute? They are very cute. They are little bears. And little bears are very cute. And so are you. Oh, please, please don't say that. It's I'm true, though. Anyway, once again, our first segment here on Blissington Falls News Review Now is Little Trizzy's Trizzy Ween Tree. Yay, I like Trizzy Ween, Mommy. Let's eat candy. We will. Little Trizzy is busy drawing in her sketchbook, so I'll be hosting her Trizzy Ween Treat this week. Our topic this time out is Universal Studios' Surprise Halloween Park Playlist. Let's go. and express four passes for this September's USJ Halloween visit arrived yesterday, mm-hmm. and Ume and I are very excited. Yes. Soon we'll buy passes for our October visits, but of course just holding these spikes my anticipation. Me too. Still trying to decide if we dare challenge the fearsome flying dinosaur roller coaster in the Jurassic Park area. No, that is too scary. Ume, you don't have to ride it if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure even I can handle it. Okay. And with that sort of settled, every September through early November, Universal Studios Japan in Osaka converts itself into a Halloween wonderland. They put up decorations, Mm. offer special menu items in their restaurants and snack stands. 
The staff wear orange witch hats, and the atmosphere has a gentle spookiness to it that suits all ages. And me. At least until 6 p.m., when the lights go out all over the park, and the zombies come out. Zombies. But I love that Halloween feeling USJ envelops you with during the day. I do, too. One major aspect of that, for me, is the music. USJ has a special music mix constantly Mm. playing, and I made it my mission to figure out what songs they used and to buy digital copies so I could recreate that feeling all Halloween season while drawing on my Centic or just messing around online. (laughs) It took a while, but now I have a 22-song Universal Studios Japan surprise Halloween mix to share with you. And here's how you can make your own. Sorry, I'm not sure about the track order, but I did my best to approximate what I'm familiar with. You can always do your best. 1. I Want Candy Kids Bop Halloween Hits Version 2. Halloween Party, Sue Schnitzer, Boo, Cackle, Trick, or Treat. Mm. Three, Spooky Scary Skeletons. Four, Mm. It Must Be Halloween. Five, Trick or Treat. Six, Give Me a Smile, The Pumpkin Song. Seven, Don't Scream, It's Only Halloween. Eight, The Creature Mm. from the Tub. Nine, Halloween Party, written by Bo and Evelyn Cassidy. Ten, Witches, Witches, Witches. Eleven, In Our Haunted House. All performed by Andrew Gold from his Halloween House CD. Wow, that's a lot. Twelve, it's Halloween Tonight, the Fort Lewis Choral Society, Daniel Friedman, Pearl and the Pumpkin. Thirteen, Time Warp, Patricia Quinn, the Rocky Horror Picture Show cast, the Rocky Horror Show original soundtrack. So many. Fourteen, Dinner with Drac, Part One, John Zacherly, This Record is Not to be Broadcast, Volume Two. Don't broadcast. Fifteen, Flying Purple People Eater, Sheb Woolley. Fifty classic children's party songs for kids of all ages. Uh-huh. Sixteen, Witch Doctor, David uh-huh. Seville, Doo-Wop Date Night. Hmm. Seventeen, Monster Mash, Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kickers, London American, 1962, Volume Four. Hmm. 18, Haunted House, re-recording, Jumpin' Gene Simmons, Halloween Fun for Kids. 19, Somebody's Watching Me, Rockwell, 180s. 20, Halloween, Aqua, Aquarius, Special Edition. 21, Thriller, Michael Jackson, Thriller. This is my favorite. 22, Gimme Choco, or Mm. Give Me Chocolate, Baby Metal, Baby Metal. It took me forever to track down It's Halloween Tonight by the Fort Lewis Choral Society. It's very short, and over the park speakers, the words were never the clearest. But last year, I finally figured it out. And I think the Jumpin' Gene Simmons Haunted House is a fairly recent addition. I could be wrong, but I don't remember hearing it before last year. I don't remember it at all. I'm not sure if they're going to change this up for 2019 surprise Halloween event. Maybe. The baby metal song comes from the cutie zombie zone in New York City, where it was on an endless loop with Aqua's Halloween, and you don't hear it during the regular course of the day, but maybe this year it'll be different. Whatever songs they use, these are the ones that make up what I think of as the classic mix, so go buy each of them and make a playlist for your own Halloween party this year. Go ahead, I dare you. You can have a party. I pumpkin dare you. A triple dog jack-o'-lantern dare ya. Wow, that's a lot. What's next for this edition of Trizzy Ween, Ume? I don't know.
I don't know. Okay then. Excited about the Netflix Babysitters Club series? I don't know what that is. Which one? Series or Babysitters or Club for Netflix. Ume, Netflix is the streaming service we watch on our TV. That's how we watch Stranger Things and Star Trek Discovery. Oh. And a club is a group of people who share a common interest or activity. Are we a club? We're a family, but we could form a club if you like. What kind of club would you like to form, Ume? Hmm, the Nice Dogs and People Club. We can have ice cream parties. And eat ice cream? That sounds delightful. I'm in. We are a club. We are a family, but we are also a club. And who's club president? I don't know what that is. Never mind. We won't have officers. We'll just have ice cream. And hamburgers and pizza and tacos and we'll watch Stranger Things and sing songs, and you can read stories to me, okay? I'd love to. Yay! Thank you. This is the best club. It is because you're in it, Ume. Anyway, The Hollywood Reporter and several other sites, including CNN and Entertainment Weekly, reported last Tuesday, August 6th, Alicia Silverstone, formerly Cher from Clueless, movie Batgirl, and voice and producer of Braceface, has joined the cast of Netflix's new Babysitter's Club revival series now shooting in Vancouver. Silverstone will play club president Christy Thomas. No, I'm kidding. She's going to play Christy's mom, Elizabeth Thomas Brewer. Mark Feuerstein will play Watson Brewer, her husband and Christy's stepfather. These are pivotal roles, of course. I mean, we wouldn't have Christy without her mom, and that would mean no Babysitter's Club, because the whole thing was Christy's great idea in the first place. But who will play Christy, the sporty, kind of nosy, sort of bossy, and always speaking her mind, leader of the club? And who will play Claudia, Stacy, Don, Marianne, Jesse, and Mallory, the Babysitter's Club themselves, without whom you wouldn't have any stories to tell? Still waiting for a main cast announcement. Michael De Luca, executive produces with Lucia Agnello. The real creator of the club, beloved author Anne M. Martin, produces as well, with Rachel Schuchert of GLOW acting as showrunner. The Babysitter's Club will run for 10 episodes on Netflix, courtesy rights owners Walden Media. Raina Telgemeier's graphic novel adaptations for Scholastic let me experience these stories for the first time not too long ago, so I'm stoked for this series. It's like the friends I didn't get to have when I was an actual babysitter back during the original prose book's heyday. My niece was a major fan, I remember, and she was bitterly disappointed by the 1995 theatrical film, despite its pretty stellar cast. She did like the little TV show, though. 
Sony Pictures TV has a Spider-Man Universe TV series in the work, according to Deadline Hollywood. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse executive producer Chris Miller hasn't shared many details other than telling Deadline Sony's developing a handful of live-action shows using the Marvel characters they have the rights to, which he numbers as being somewhere in the friendly neighborhood of 900. Miller even played it cagey about where we'll be able to watch this show. I'm going to guess it won't be on a Disney streaming service. Miller and producing partner Phil Lord signed a mega deal with Sony, and they can spin pretty much any web they like, any size, catch ideas, and bad guys like flies. Action as well as truckloads of cold hard cash are their reward. Variety tells us Viacom has bought Garfield, the comic strip, not the cat. Or maybe the cat as well. He's going to cost them a fortune in lasagna, though. Variety reported August 6th, the orange cat will continue hating Mondays and Normal, but this time over at Nickelodeon, when Viacom completes its deal to buy Paws Incorporated, the company that holds all global intellectual property rights to Odie, Mondays, Lasagna, Furballs, Big Overlapping, Oval Eyes, and drinking cups of scalding hot dog semen at the vet's office. Nickelodeon is already planning a new Garfield animated series, and they'll be managing all the merchandising rights to the character and his friends and enemies, which generate millions of dollars a year. With so much riding on his rounded shoulders, I'm sure Viacom and Nickelodeon can convince famously lazy comic strip icon Garfield to rise from his little blanketed cat bed and get to work making more fun. I hate Mondays and love lasagna too. Can I get a piece of that? No? Okay, then. Ume, you're really cute. Would you like to be rich and famous like Garfield? No, I like my life with you. Are you sure you don't crave celebrity and cash? Uh Uh-huh. Aw. I like to play with my friends and you. That's all the entertainment news we feel like bringing you this week. So let's do a review of Rocco's Modern Life Static Cling, the revival of a beloved 90s animated series from Nickelodeon and now on Netflix. or whatever you wish to call them, are usually pretty gruesome. Not the shows themselves necessarily, but the noise around them. The new Ghostbusters? Even if you think the movie itself sucked, and it did not, it was hilarious, and honestly the original was no flawless masterpiece either. The outcry before and in the immediate aftermath of its release was over-the-top and rage-reactionary in that way only possible when losers assign meaning to something that's actually quite disposable, innocuous, or otherwise inconsequential. She-Ra and the Princesses of Power adds meaning and intelligence to an 80s cartoon that existed only to sell toys and had soporific educational epilogues attached to it to at least halfway justify its existence as anything other than mercenary trite. 
All it took was taking something dopey and derivative and ostensibly for 80s children and remaking it into something thoughtful and creative for 2019's children and certain guys lost their minds for a reason I won't repeat here in front of Ume. And I'm as susceptible to the lure of nostalgia as anyone. I just don't get angry about a ruined childhood because, wow, these are TV cartoons we're talking about. They're about as important to the world as cotton candy is to a balanced, healthy diet. And even if I dislike the reboot, my childhood remains intact. They didn't overwrite my memories like some kind of Black Mirror episode where every time a rebooted version of a beloved media property comes out, they literally erase the original from your mind or something. So here comes Rocco's Modern Life, and I was and remain a huge 90s Nick Show fan. Are You Afraid of the Dark, Rugrats, Ah, Real Monsters? Those were all good stuff. I have the complete Are You Afraid of the Dark series and Rocco on DVD. It's not that Rocco lives again for me, because Rocco never died. So it's with great glee I can tell you Rocco's Modern Life, Static Cling, produced by original Rocco creator Joe Murray, along with Elizabeth Vasquez and Rami Musquiz, directed by Murray and Cosmo Sergison, and written by Murray, Doug Lawrence, and Martin Olson, is pitch perfect. It feels like classic Nick animation, while directly addressing its own existence as both a reboot and a nostalgia piece. And it pokes fun at today while also embracing change. You'd expect something with Modern Life and its title to be satiric about Modern Life, and Rocco's Modern Life static cling is. There are jokes about gluten and iPhones and posting to social media. The YouTube jokes were especially spot on. Rocco himself suffers some culture lag whiplash while his friends dive right into today. Rocco is also gently mocked as a benign nostalgia fan whose enthusiasm for the past curdles into bitterness the moment he finally sees the new version of his beloved show, which feels a lot like commentary on this new cartoon itself. Probably not even feels like, but absolutely is. But Rocco is pretty flexible and sweet-natured, unlike some of the real-life examples of same we could talk about here. And yes, someone's transition is a major plot point. An important character is a transgender woman, Rachel Bighead, cartoonist, animator, and ice cream salesperson, who, in what must be something of a metatextual joke, is voiced by Joe Murray. Rocco's search for her, along with Filbert, who live-streams it to his five subscribers, which leads to the special's funniest gag, and Heifer, forms what passes for a plot here. Mr. Bighead's accidental math error destroys conglomo, meaning O-Town's economy is in the dumps. The only way back to solvency is through new episodes of The Fatheads, the cartoon Rachel created and Rocco loves so much. That Rachel is a transgender woman is a very important element of the story as well, and fortunately it's not a coming-out story so much as it is an accept-me-as-I-am story. It's amazing to see this address so openly and directly and, very refreshingly, with good grace and respect, without also becoming cloying. I am super happy with this as a reboot and a revisiting and simply a continuation, and their treatment of Rachel really moved me and made me feel like every so often an old thing should come back and address how different we are now. If you're going to do something like this with every 90s property, then Rocco's Modern Life Static Cling should also serve as a model and guide. It's a cartoon bringing back an old fave that is about the dangers of bringing back old faves that also shows you you absolutely can sometimes pick up where you left off. Reboots from here, please take notes on the care and insight and self-awareness of Rocco's Modern Life Static Cling. 
I like it a lot, and yes, I'm glad I own those DVDs still. started reading the Archie Comics Sabrina the Teenage Witch Complete Collection Volume 1, and overall it's an excellent book arranged by years starting with Sabrina's first appearance in 1962 and running through 1972. That's about 10 years of comics and 500 pages, although apparently she made only a single appearance in 1965 in a house ad for Archie's Madhouse Annual. Sabrina resumed story appearances in 1966. Obviously, the original Sabrina has almost zero to do with the ABC sitcom Sabrina or the current Netflix horror show Sabrina. At first, Sabrina has to put hexes on other teenagers on the orders of Miss Della, the head witch. But soon, they drop this element, and mostly she just gets into typical Archie teenager scenarios like bowling competitions and beach parties and skateboard dates while she tries to use her magic powers to cheat or ruin someone. This someone is usually Rosalind, another girl in her social circle. I don't particularly like the story element, but we're talking 1960s comics about a girl written by older men, and this is probably the best they could come up with. Anyway, Sabrina's powers would always backfire in some way, where ironically she feels she's at a disadvantage to the non-powered Rosalind. And she kind of cheerfully accepts her losses at the end of each story. I'm just telling you this in case you're wondering what a 1960s Sabrina the Teenage Witch story is like. I love the execution while being meh about the central conceit. I want Sabrina to be about other more devious evil things and to win the fights. But I do love reading these, and the art is always crisp and delicious. But that's what you get with artists like Dan DiCarlo, Al Hartley, Bill Yoshida, and even Marvel superstar inker Joe Sennett. And sometimes there are caricatures of the Beatles who are just random people with shaggy black hair. They don't even try to depict Ringo with any accuracy. They should have done a whole story where Sabrina meets Ringo and they go dancing. Obviously, there's no way in wholesome 60s comics land they would have had a truly evil, wicked Sabrina successfully subverting the patriarchy. So she's more about making other girls look bad, winning the boy of her dreams, and using magic to pass math tests. But even so, she's not allowed to win at any of those things, or suggest the status quo is unjust or wrong, that would never, never do, not in 1966. No, you're not getting a feminist Sabrina in this book, but I'm still enjoying it because of the time capsule effect and the splendid art. I highly recommend it to Sabrina fans to see where it all started and the difference in its voice and the current version of Sabrina. Very high contrast. Plus, it wasn't very expensive and it's got lots of stories. It's just a neat little book packed with comic book historical fun. And while we're on that topic, 500 black and white pages for $9.99 US. That's a tremendous reading value. I'd love to see DC and Marvel get on this bandwagon and produce some nice black and white digest-sized reprints of their 60s titles on decent paper in this relatively affordable and super readable format. 
It's more compact and seems higher quality for its price than their larger Essential and Showcase versions. Seems like a decent compromise for price versus readability, and the overall design really satisfies. It's just a very cool package. Oh, and I'd love some 70s and 80s reprints like this, too. This would be a great format for series that didn't last all that long, but have a lot of nostalgia value. But maybe it's cheaper and more cost-effective for DC and Marvel just to toss some of those to digital and see what sticks. So I'm very glad Archie went in this direction. We'll take a look at the Josie and the Pussycats book later. I'm on vacation and it's too hot and I'm too broke to do anything spendy, so I'm hitting the deep cuts on my bookshelf instead. The newest version of Naoko Takeuchi's Sailor Moon comics, available in English translation, is Kodansha Comics' Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon The Eternal Edition, which calls itself the definitive edition of the classic manga. And despite owning an incredibly fun box set with the first six books of an earlier edition, I have to agree, this box set came with stickers too. Kodansha has five volumes in print. The most recent came out in June this year, but number six is on the way this November. And as of July 1st, 2019, the first four volumes exist in the digital realm at Apple Books, Bookwalker, Comixology, Kindle, Kobo, My Anime List, and Nook. Volume 5 is on the way there, and each subsequent volume will release simultaneously in print and digital. Isn't that exciting? Of course it is. I have the first two so far, and eventually I'll own them all. So even if you've bought previous versions, you'll want this, because it seriously supersedes them. For one thing, while it contains the same material, it's larger, much larger. Each book runs about 300 pages and is at least twice the size of the older ones. That means Usagi and her friends are larger and clearer than ever before, and you can study the line screens and screen tones to your heart's content. It's about as close as we're ever going to come to seeing Takeuchi's beautiful and appealing mega-influential artwork in its original size. I'm not sure what size artboard she produced Sailor Moon on, but it couldn't have been much larger than this. So while you're probably familiar with the story and characters from having read the manga and watched the anime millions of times to the exclusion of all other life activities, which is how it should be appreciated, seeing it at this size is to behold and fall in love with it anew, almost as if it were for the very first time. That's how lovely it is. And it's on a heavier premium paper as well, so the line work is extra crisp and detailed. That freshens it as well. The translation is revised, too, from the most recent 2011 printing. I'm not skilled enough at reading Japanese yet to attempt the original language publications to compare how accurate this updated translation and localization is. You'll have to ask Alethea and Athena Nibley, the team responsible. I only know, as a reader, it's personable and clear and lively and helps me get into the characters in their world. But the translators also provide notes at the end, which will help you there as well. They're interesting and informative. You can learn about Miko, the shrine priestesses who work part-time selling charms and fortunes, and Takikomi rice balls, and different planet names, and even explanations of the various locales the senshi hang out in when they're not kicking evils collectively evil butt. Many of these things I've encountered firsthand actually living in Japan, but if you can at least visit, you'll still enjoy learning and enriching your Sailor Moon experience with these notes. They are very helpful. The Eternal Editions include full-color art as well, which definitely benefits from the larger format. So you're getting all the Sailor Moon wonderment with which we're all entranced, but in a sense more of it because it's bigger and more gorgeous than ever before. Another thing I fully suggest you do is join the Pretty Guardians fan club. You can find a link on Kodansha's webpage to the English language version of Pretty Guardians. 
Applications only open for a limited period each year, but joining the fan club gets you in on a lot more Sailor Moon information and, yes, club-exclusive products to spend money on because those are fun too. You can check prettyguardians.com for more info and a link to the overseas member site as well. Okay, honestly, I think the membership period has closed for now, but keep checking because it'll open up again. I checked every day for months before I was able to join, and now I'm a second-year member. If that colors your appreciation of my gushing review here of Kodansha's Sailor Moon Eternal Editions, well, then that's just too bad. I am a Sailor Moon fan and Pretty Guardian member, the Champion of Justice. And I say on behalf of the moon, I shall right wrongs and triumph over evil and convince people to enjoy Sailor Moon as much as possible, and that means you. So, Ume, did you enjoy this week's episode of Blissington Falls News Review Now? Very, very much. You did? I'm so glad. We have a club now. I want everyone to join and we can have so much fun. I know. I hope we can, too. (laughs) Me, too. Well, that's it for this episode. (laughs) Good night and try to have some kind of tomorrow. I love you all very much. Please join our club. (laughs) 